This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guests consist of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. This is a special edition of the podcast with co-host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research and Wisdom Trinity Sponsor. My co-host, Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Longhorn, is joining us by the phone for some brief commentary. Also in the studio, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Wes, thanks for coming back to the studio. Excited to be here. We have a great guest with us in the studio for the hour, Michael Batnick of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Michael, welcome to Wharton's campus. Thank you for having me. And we got your brother in the studio with us, who is a, a pen... Penn student today. I should just note before we start the conversation, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion not tied off for sale of investment products today. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Uh, Professor Siegel, we've got some commentary from you coming. Um, you know, it's been a volatile week, back and forth, Trump, tariffs, China. Um, we got, you know, the market sort of got resilient to the tariff announcements. We got some more tariffs last night, or announcements of tariffs, planned tariffs. What's your uh, your current take? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I want to go back to those days in January when the Dow never moved 100 points. Now it seems like moving 100 points every hour on the hour. Um, yeah, I mean, two big events. Obviously, the you know, potential slap of $100 billion on certainly upset the market's uh, Earlier, uh, I mean, uh, no one knows where this is going to end. Uh, you know, we don't, we we just don't have a, a framework, uh, you know, historically uh, to say is this a just a, a you know a negotiating ploy. Um, obviously, uh, we have Larry Kudlow, his new economic advisors, trying to say, hey guys, don't don't think this is a fait accompli, where this is a you know this is the first salvo in a negotiation. Or, or uh, you know, is is Trump going to uh, uh, rev this up to a much higher level? I mean, certainly uh, he's going to hear some complaints from stockholders and from maybe farmers and others if he does start revving this up to higher levels. Um, so we just we just have to wait. Um, and I'm hoping, of course, that Larry's counsel, uh, Larry Kudlow's counsel, he is a free trader, um, will prevail and prevent this from getting to be so serious. It looks like the market puts a bet that way, but obviously it's not certain. We had a very interesting employment report uh, today. Um, it cooled off, which was good because we couldn't stay as hot as, uh, you know, 300 and actually was revved up uh, in the um, February 326. Uh, 100 is actually the sustainable amount, but that doesn't look like it's we're at that level yet. We're still you know, closer to 200,000 as a trend, that's still too much. But with the, with the cool down, we kept the unemployment rate again at 4.1%. Now, at the same time, we moved that uh, U6 unemployment rate down to 8 again, which ties the 50-year low 
that we reached late last year. Some economists say the real slack of the market is the difference between the official unemployment rate and that U6 unemployment rate. So that did tighten a little bit. Uh, but we have a, a kind of a, a breather here. Um, the, the Fed is meeting on May 2nd. There will not be another employment report between now uh, and then, of course, we're going to get a couple of price reports, actually the, the first one coming out next Tuesday. Um, so the Fed is not going to act, but uh, this this is not going to change the picture. It still looks like quarterly rate hikes into the future unless we see a sustained uh, slowdown in uh, that payroll growth. Would you say from a big picture level, from the tariffs, that you know we – are importing from China, say, call it four times as much as they import from us, that they have more to lose in this discussion? Like, how would you frame, you know, all the noise? There's a lot of noise. Um, do you tell people to look past the noise? Like, how, how do you think about that? I mean, you know, who has the most to lose is very hard. Um, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, we put, uh, you know, tariffs on uh, uh, other countries can then buy from China and then uh, sell us. I mean, and it's very hard to monitor that sort of a flow through. I mean, in oil particularly, where it's totally fungible, you know, we say we're not going to import oil from a particular country. It really doesn't matter. There's one big pool of oil. Someone else will use it, and then and, and then we'll get it. Uh, when you're talking about specific manufactured good, then, then it is uh, a little bit harder. I don't know in terms of, you know, uh, you know they, they could slap a – a tariff on Apple uh, and a Apple iPhones, and uh, uh, I mean that would be severe because uh, you know Apple has got a good market in China, but it's not all dominating. And uh, you know sometimes 10%, 15% tariff could really shift. So I mean that's the fear. That's one reason tech has been soft. Uh, you know how far will will this go um and uh, you know honestly i am not a trade expert i've never negotiated or into that area so um i try to listen to people who you know sound informed uh at this particular point uh most of them say we don't really have a, a good sense of how this is going to end either Michael, any questions for the professor while, while we have him yeah sure hey hey professor um hello so two two questions and one comment so Nobody sees a recession on the horizon, which I guess is good news, but you know, good economic backdrop, earnings projected to grow between 15 and 18% year over year. So the two things that I would say is, does anybody ever see a recession on the horizon? And then secondly, um, is it possible that we see a bear market in stocks uh, with good economic fundamentals? Well, first of all, um, uh, yeah, it's really hard to forecast recessions. Um, you, what would get us nervous is really a, a total flattening and inversion of the yield curve. And although it has gotten flatter, it is far from flat. Um, and uh, usually it's a year to year and a half, even after it flattens and inverts, uh, when we really could tip over. So at this particular point, next four quarters, I don't see anything outside an outside you know, trade war that escalates uncontrollably uh, that uh, would, would bring us there. A bear market? Uh, yeah, I mean, a real bear market, uh, I mean, if a trade war, would that bring about a recession or just a bear market? I think a bear market and a big slowdown, if there was a, a, a real uh, a trade war, um, obviously, if other countries got in the act and, you know, memories of Smoot-Hawley of the 1930s gets uh, put up there, then, then you have a much more serious uh, situation. Again, I don't expect 
these scenarios, but the market is always worried about something like that happening. We've had a correction, 10 12%, with really no slowdown. Now, we're going to get first quarter at the end of this month. Uh, it's going to be relatively soft, one five, one six. But the experts I'm following say this quarter we just entered into is looking three three zero three one. Some are saying three five. So we've always had these sort of slower first quarters. Some of it might be seasonal adjustment, and then an acceleration uh, coming up. So this quarter is at least uh, the people I follow is now. We're coming into this quarter at over 3% rate. It's certainly nothing that looks like a uh, recession at all. It's, it's amazing how fragile sentiment can be. You get a little of announcement of the tariff, and it's not, obviously like nothing's happened overnight that you get a big deal, but the markets are just moving on this sentiment on, on what's pushing around. Trade, it's, you know, trade was the thing that, you know, that the market always – I mean, of the Trump agenda, we, we've talked about this many times. They love the Republican agenda, which was tax cuts and less regulation. They didn't like the Trump-specific agenda of uh, tariffs and, and trade disruptions. And unfortunately, we're now getting that second part, and it's, it's, it's trying to uh, you know, fight its way through. Very good, Professor. Thanks for, uh, for some commentary today. Thanks for having me. Actually, we're going to continue the show. We've got Michael with us for the hour. So Michael is Director of Research at Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's a contributor to the Ritholtz Investments concept. He writes at the Relevant Investor blog where you can find basically daily commentary, Michael, every day you're writing something? A couple times a week. A couple times a week. Um, and he's now in the process of publishing a new book, Big Mistakes, The Best Investors and Their Worst Investments. So their failures. Um, thanks for coming down to the studio. Thanks for having me. Um, maybe you could tell a little bit your personal story. How did you get to Ritholtz? What was your sort of background before you got there, before you met Josh and Barry? So I graduated in the uh, in the midst of the Great Recession at the end of 2007, and I started at an insurance company. And I had no idea what I was doing, but it didn't take me long to figure out what was going on, what type of environment I was in, what the incentives were. And I found Josh Brown writing a blog called The Reform Broker, and a lot of the nefarious activities that he was seeing, I was seeing just, you know, human nature, uh, incentive driven, and probably to a lesser extent, some of the bad practices that were going on. But he was really the North Star, the person that I was looking up to, um, and to, to find out, like, what was out there, what was the better way of doing business. And so how did you first make that connection? Uh, what, what connection? With Josh. How did I meet him? Yeah. So I, uh, I was out of work. Um, based, studying for the CFA, trading stocks, just trying to figure out what was going on, what made the system work, and what made stocks move. And um, it turns out that Josh and I grew up in the same town. And I met him, believe it or not, on at the platform in my hometown after after a Knicks game, and I sort of tackled him. <laughs> and and uh, he was nice enough to, to keep in touch. And when I saw that he and Barry were hiring, I met him, and he gave me a job. No, it's amazing how these little random sources of, of luck, you get you know, the right place, right time, you find somebody, you latch on to them. I could, uh, I could relate to that experience. Yeah. Uh, one thing I just want to uh, think you should elaborate on is your background is where you kind of went through this experience of trying to be a trader yourself <laughs> and then unlearn that skill real quickly. You, you mind uh, sharing that with the audience? Yeah, yeah, sure. So one of the best things for me about social media was the transparency of it or maybe the, the lack of transparency, but seeing how the sausage was made and following traders and seeing what they were saying from day to day, it was so apparent how ridiculous most of it is, how people are not trading with the system, how a lot of it is, is just gut decision and the lack of repeatability and, 
and the the random nature of the markets was just so apparent to me early on. So I banged my head against the wall for a few years. Um, thank God I didn't take any catastrophic losses. Um, but it certainly didn't take any big gains either. So it, it didn't take me too long to figure out that I was not destined to be the next Stanley Druckenmiller. Your process, I've heard you describe it in some other shows, of how you sort of wrote down your your lessons every day and that fed into your sort of feedback mechanism. That, that was sort of an interesting learning experience. Maybe describe how you got to that process and, and how, how it educated <laughs> you quickly. So it was only recently that I sort of, that the light bulb went off. So Ben and I were going through my old trading journal and we were reading it out loud and it was just hilarious. So I was shorting Amazon back in, back in 2011, just repeatedly shorting it. And the commentary that I was giving on a daily basis was, um, it's, it's hilarious now, but I wasn't kidding. And just to read that stuff, like to write down every single day my P&L, what my thought process was, it's impossible to delude yourself if you're writing it down every day and keeping track of your thoughts, your outcomes. Um, I don't know how you can write it down and fool yourself for longer than a few a few months. That's got to be exactly one of the benefits of writing the blogs like you do also. And as sort of writers, Wes, you know, we all do a lot of writing. It forces you to have a view, then it forces you to evaluate. Were you right? Were you wrong? It really have good self-reflection. Yep. I don't really have much to add to that. I just I agree. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Um, so, so out of all your trading stories, I thought one uh, was pretty compelling because I suffer from the same thing. But you, you mentioned about this extreme difficulty to ride winners. You mind elaborating on that and, and telling the audience why that's uh, something that's a very common bias? Yeah, so ride your winners, um, cut your losers short uh, is one of the oldest market aphorisms. Uh, and it's just it's it's really easy to say and it sounds good, but it's supremely difficult. So the way that I was trading was I would buy the breakout and then I would sell on the retest. And then, of course, it would you know bounce and go on to higher prices. But I just found that I was banging my head against the wall so frequently, making the same mistake over and over and over. And I couldn't untrain myself because it's not in my personality and not in my DNA. I just couldn't overcome that. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, if if you own Bitcoin and it went up 10 percent. You and I would both be selling out a long time ago. Yeah. Missing out on the million percent yeah, gain. Yeah, so I, I know, like, just I am incapable of, of, of uh, holding on to a stock at Amazon. Like, no way. Can't do it. So you got reformed from trading towards sort of a different investment approach. How, what, what would you, how would you describe your core investment thinking today if it had gone from trading mindset towards now more of a long-term? So I, was, I would describe my early process as chaos. I, uh, the first book that I read was The Intelligent Investor, which is why I call my blog The Irrelevant Investor. Um, just a, a nod to Ben Graham. So I started doing that, but it wasn't really deep fundamental analysis. It was really just looking at ratios and thinking that that was the answer to all of all of uh, the stock market's problems. And then I read the little book of common sense investing by Bogle, and I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. If Warren Buffett is, is leaving his money to the S&P 500, why, why wouldn't I do that? But then I read um, the reminiscences, and I was like, oh, why would I buy and hold an index when you could just pick the best stocks and sell them before they go up and sell them before they go down? Uh, buy them before they go up, sell them before they go down. So it just it just dawned on me that I'm not um, I'm not Warren Buffett or Ben Graham and I'm not Druckenmiller or Paul Tudor Jones. I'm just an average uh, sort of investor. So I just found the appeal of indexing over time. And nobody opens up a brokerage account that is like, I'm going to buy the S&P 500 and I'm going to buy the Barclays Ag and I'm going to be done with it. You have to come to that realization on your own. Um, a lot of people never come to that realization, which is fine. I'm not suggesting that my way is the way for everybody. But for me, um, that's the right way. How do you... Um because I think probably for a lot of your clients, that's also a challenge where they're paying you as an advisor to basically tell them to buy and hold yep. and hold on to these relatively simple portfolios. 
because arguably it's good for them. But at the same time, they're asking you, what What are you doing for me? H- how do you guys tackle that tension with your own clients? Yeah, so it's funny. A lot of people, not a lot of people, 99% of our clients come to us because of the blogs or the podcast or whatever. So it's investment first, but we have to do a 180 with them because we talk about investments last. It's really, we really focus on the financial planning part of it. What is this money for um, is the most important question. What is it for and am I going to be okay? That's why people pay us. Now, um, on the one hand, we know that if you just buy an index fund and you hold it for the next 70 years, you're going to do better than everybody else. And the reason is because it's basically impossible. Uh, there is a huge cost to pay for those returns, whether it's you know the historical 4 to 5% real and 8%, whatever the return, future returns are, nobody knows. But there is a cost associated with, with those returns, and, and they are 50% drawdowns. And most people, myself included, just cannot stomach that. So I'm not totally dogmatic about buy and hold. I think that there is a place for common sense tactical approach in your portfolio. And that's what we do. That's what I do with my own money. And that's what we do for our clients. It's a, it's a mix of the two. So in 2000, I don't know if it's 13 or 14, um, Fama and Schiller both won the Nobel Prize same year. Diametrically opposed views. One was efficient markets, bubbles don't exist, don't do anything because everything's in the price. And the other is, well, not so fast. Bubbles do exist because we're a bunch of maniacs, uh, manic highs and manic lows. And uh, so what we do is we just, we sort of hope, uh, you know, attempt to take the both best of both worlds, which is we're going to buy and hold with, with some of your money and we're going to be a little bit tactical with another piece of it. So how, you know, when you think about the, developing that tactical system, um, I mean, West does a lot of publishing on trend as a model to try to get you out of the market. West, is the trend signal bearish yet? I think if I last I looked, not, not on your, your model. Yeah, I mean, we, we focus on long-term trend, and I think, you know, international equities got close recently. REIT's blown out. Long bonds are blown out. Um, but in general, in equity markets, it's, you know, long and strong, baby. Uh, let your winners ride. So, Michael, have you? So, I'm curious if your models are showing similar, and or you know, are you getting is the volatility starting to get closer to one of these trends that would get you more defensive, or, yeah, or how did you develop your system? We're still all in, and I believe we have been for 20 months. Um, so, like Wes said, we are longer term trend followers, uh, but it's it's getting dicey. So we'll see. I, I guess the good thing is that it's you know the signal is not relying on my emotion or my my intellect because that would fail miserably as it has proven to do from time to time so where the market will goes goes we'll you know we'll say nice so uh, i'd like to uh dig a little bit more on uh your guys business cuz i just find it fascinating uh you know a group from you know no no major pedigrees you know got five queens PhD. college yeah yeah the, a bunch of just hustlers and uh, good guys you know come together and i, I was talking to Barry a couple weeks ago and you, apparently, has almost got a billion dollars under management. Um, what, what do you think? What's your secret sauce? Like, like how, how have you guys been so successful? So this was not. We didn't like have a five year plan when we started. We're coming up in five years, and the approach was just to be ourselves. But again, so we do a lot of. I guess you would say everything that we do is marketing. But it's not like we're not doing flyers in the mail. Our marketing is telling our version of the truth to people, and it either resonates or it doesn't. What we're not trying to do is we're not trying to convert people into believers. We are trying to work with people that want to work with us, which is just frankly, a, from a mental state of health, just a great system. Um, when I was at the insurance company, I was calling everybody who didn't want to speak to me. And so to be on the other end of it where we're getting phone calls from people that want to speak to us is just an amazing place to be. And I feel very, very fortunate. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Michael Batnick, Director of Research at Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's the author of the Irrelevant Investor blog and a new book out, Coming Big Mistakes, The Best Investors and Their Worst Investments. Um, and so as you built this incredible, you know, you're trying to, you're expanding across from New York to other geographies, other investors are, or advisors are joining Ritholtz. How do you think about the 
firms you want to partner with, bring, people you're bringing on? Like, what are the, the, the profiles of, of what your current sort of lineup is? And then as you think about adding new people on? So we just want to work with good people, first and foremost, that are like-minded in terms of the way that we invest, that want to do right by their clients, um, don't have huge egos. We're not, you know, we're looking for financial advisors that want to work with us. Uh, we're, we're pretty much geographic agnostic. Uh, 99% of the, the what we do is over the phone with people anyhow. So we don't need like Miami and, you know, the, the giant cities. Um, we're happy to work with people from smaller cities, people that want to be part of the team. So give us the 30-second the pitch for that advisor to join Ritholtz. What are you telling that advisor? Why should they join up with you guys? Well, the pitch is just in terms of like compliance, legal, all that, all that sort of stuff. Back office, we got covered. We're going to do trading. We're going to do – we're going to let you be the advisor. We're going to give you people that want to talk to us. Um, so we're going to allow you to grow your business in the way that is commensurate with what you think your potential is. Yeah, and, and I think probably uh, just from outsider looking in, I'd say your biggest assets probably I'd say you guys culture. Um, I feel like you have a brand around you know doing the right thing, which you would think financial services would have always been about that, but you, you guys have seemed to have done a really good job. Do you mind talking about how you created that ethos? Well, that's that's we we all came together from a background of just seeing the wrong, the, you know, the backwards way that that the industry tends to work from from Josh to Chris to myself and Barry and the rest of the advisors. Um, again, this is our version of the truth. We're not we're not totally dogmatic and saying that our portfolio is better than the next advisor, um, but it's just nice to be able to sell our story and not have to convince somebody that we're the right person for them. It's either it's either yes or no, and I think it just creates a much better relationship that way. So maybe talk about some of the people you brought on recently, sort of the different types of, you know, beyond investments. So you oversee the investment portfolio. Um, what are the other big demands or sort of draws on your firm's expertise where you brought in some new advisors to help grow, you know, the Ritholtz offering? So we now have just full capabilities across the board of financial planning. So two of the two of the uh, people that we brought on recently, uh, advisors from Chicago. They started at a, at an insurance company like myself, and I was very, very turned off to the idea of offering insurance to our clients because I had such a negative experience with it, just all the wrong incentives. And they had a very similar experience where they actually pressed eject, or not, well, they were sort of um, forced out of their company because they weren't selling enough insurance. Hmm. So there are, you know, clients do need insurance. Um, it is a very, very critical piece to somebody's financial plan. If you don't have it, it's it's a it's a big thing. So anyway, so. We brought them in and they add capabilities that we didn't have before. You know, most of our clients have insurance, so it's not that we're trying to like pummel whole life down their throat. But if somebody's been paying, you know, life insurance premiums for 25 years, they've been paying five, 10 grand a year, what are my options? That's a terrific service that we're now able to provide. We also brought in a, a guy in California, Gary uh, Pulford, who is has expertise in estate planning, not that he's an attorney, but could speak the language, which is something that we weren't really able to do internally. So to broaden, broaden out our uh, capabilities has just been really, really rewarding. And to, to bring in the right people, first and foremost, is just terrific. Insurance, real quick, how do you think about your personal insurance? Have you, um, as young people, you know, it's one of those things that we don't talk a lot about in this program, but now that it's one of the things that you guys are offering, do you think there's this whole life insurance, term insurance? How do you think about it personally? So I'm a term person, um, and I think that insurance is very important for young people, particularly because I was talking to Ben about this on the podcast maybe a week or two ago. My wife's father passed away at a very young age, and he was severely underinsured, and that sort of blew a hole in her, her entire family's life. So maybe that hits a little bit closer to home, but I think that for, for the cost of it, it's it's like it's nothing. It's a few bucks a year. I think it's irresponsible uh, not to, if, if assuming that like you don't have other assets that you need it. 
Yeah, I, I was my fa- my father in law grew up in the insurance business, made a lot of money in the insurance business, and you know now we got two kids, and you know you've got expenses, and he says you better get some term insurance for my daughter. Yeah, um, if, if if I if I were to to die, my wife and young son would be in a in a heap of trouble. So. Yeah, yeah, but but now they have insurance, so they probably have a party, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You gotta be careful. Watch watch your life there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So speaking of parties, have you guys uh, considered what's going to happen when you hit the one billion mark? You gonna do anything cool up there in New York? Yeah, I'm probably gonna write a blog post, maybe do a podcast. I like it. <laughs> that makes sense. One uh, one of the other things, just going back to the culture of of the firm and and the success you guys have created, is is I noticed that Rithold. Ritholtz Wealth Management, like the personality set is very different. Like there's yeah. this core ethos, but you have Ben, and then you have you, you have Josh, like, and you have Bill Sweet. Yeah. And, and why why is it that you, you seem to attract like opposite personalities in, in many respects? Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, we all uh, have our own voice. Like Barry has never once asked me, what are you writing about today? Um, we each, you know, we're sort of siloed out in terms of that respect. Like Josh doesn't really know what I'm working on and, and vice versa. But I think that um, it's just it's I've you know part of the, the best part of my job is just working with just terrific people. You mentioned Bill Sweet; he is uh, just a godsend, and people like Tony and Dean I Solar just really lovely to work with. So, feel very 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 lucky to work with people like this. Um, you know, we've we've had Bill on the program before. He sort of talked brought about ta- tax planning. Um, any sense of as you, as as people look at the tax codes the changes this year, things that your your sort of most common questions you might be finding for people that that you're trying to answer with with tax tax work. Yeah, I'm gonna punt on this one. I got nothing. Bill, <laughs> Bill is a tax guy, and I know you nothing. Call him up, Bill. Yeah, bad phone. <laughs> yeah, go, going back uh, actually to your guys' portfolios and uh, and trend falling. And, and you referenced the question to the professor about recessions. Um, in your guys' tactical models, do, do you guys is it pure trend, or are you looking at macro signals? Or we tried. Okay, it's just straight trend. Or? Yeah, I mean, we we tried, and actually, you were a big inspiration for this. I, you wrote something a few years ago that something along the lines of like it all boils down to simple is better, and that was sort of like a light bulb for us because we were trying all the sort of economic nonsense and overlays, and it just. It just didn't work from one period to the next. And you look at that economics, you're like, well, if it's not baked into the price, you know, um, what else? The price sort of tells all. Yeah. No, I mean, I un- unfortunately, I agree. Uh, I wish we could have a, a disagreement on that. But, yeah, we've – yeah, unless you like complexity, but a lot of times as you guys kind of – one of your core ethos is if you can do it simpler – don't make it complex because it's usually associated with higher fees. No, it just, it just it just makes the conversations a lot easier internally and externally. Like we already know the warts and all. We know the downside. Mm-hmm. We understand when it doesn't work with the price to pay. You know, we view that this is not going to beat the market. It's hopefully going to allow you like mentally to stay invested with the core of your money when things really start to go bad. And I'm not, I'm not talking about things going bad right now. I'm talking like a real like, you know, 18 month bruiser of a bear market down 40 percent, something like that. Wes, you know, you guys believe in value and momentum, and then you have this trend overlay on top of it. So you think about the market a lot. You know, what the most people who are sort of long run bearish are cape long run bearish. They're valuation long run bearish. That say expect one or two percent real returns because the cape so high. Have you, you didn't think? Have you thought about a, a trend or a timing model that would try to use valuations as as part of a longer term view? Yeah, we've. Uh, I mean, I would love nothing more. Than to be able to say that valuations are useful for tactical timing, um, but in the end, you know, if you believe in data, do studies, and look at the evidence, it's 
it's very difficult without a lot of data torture to come up with a tactical way to to leverage information about you know extreme cape ratios to actually make money from it. We know over the long haul, it's 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 a fact. You know, if you pay high price today, you will mechanically earn low returns in the future. The, but the problem is being able to incorporate that information into a system today and have it beat, buy, and hold is very difficult, I would say. Yeah, I, th- I think the thing with that is if you are expecting lower long-term returns, which I think pretty much across the board everyone is in agreement on that, then you have much less room for error. Like you can lag by 100, 200 basis points if the market's giving you 8% a year. If the market's giving you 25 3% and you're trying to get cute and you're failing, you are in for a world of hurt. If you're getting three percent and you're paying one and a half or yeah. two, you're in real trouble. Yep. Yeah, and and back to um, I think you mentioned the point that in 2013 the the two Nobel Prize winners, one Mr. Rational, one Mr. Behavioral, uh, and in going back to Ben Graham, he even talks about it. Mr. Market, the crazy maniac that shows up to your door. Sometimes he's right, sometimes he's crazy, and and I think these like sentiment is, is something that's always going to be driven a lot of times with by momentum and trend. And if there's a lot of sentiment positive for something, valuations I don't think really matter. So I totally agree. Even if you knew exactly with 100% certainty what the market was going, what the SP 500 was going to earn next year, you don't know what what the multiple is going to do. So like when when you when, okay, go ahead. I'll wrap up after this. <laughs> Sorry, you're, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We're talking with Michael Batnick here in the studio, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. We're going to have to take a quick break, uh, and we'll be back with Michael Batnick for the rest of the show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside co-host today, Wes Gray in the studio, we've got Michael Batnick, the Director of Research at Ritholtz Wealth Management, and we are just talking about the Ritholtz process for tactically managing portfolios amidst all this volatility, perhaps a really good time to be talking about that. Uh, Michael, I cut you off thinking about how you do sort of tactical management just before we went to break. Um, if you could remember where you were in that thought process. Yeah, I actually was was go- was going in a different direction. So one of the things that I, w- what I was going to say is that even if you had um, sort of the right forecast, the problem is you don't know what the multiples is going to be and you don't know what the expectations are. So when you go to Vegas and you look on the board and you say, I want to bet on the New York Knicks to win the the finals this year, well, you see the odds, right? It's like 10,000 to one. When you're investing, you don't see the odds and you don't find out until afterwards if you were right or wrong. So in order to create alpha, you have to have a differentiated view that turns out to be right and you can nail it, um, but the market could just agree with you and then you're just beta. So if you expect whatever, earnings to increase 12% and the multiple to compress by 3% and you nail that and you're at whatever, 9% or whatever it is, well, congratulations. You got market returns. Yeah. Um, so, so as you think about how that translates now, so you started working on a new book, uh, The Big Mistakes, the, B- the Best Investors and the Worst Investments. Talk about what got you to start writing the book and and what you know what you hope people start learning from that. So I wanted to write a book, and I was given really good advice by Ben. He said, if you're going to write a book, write a book that you would want to read. So I said, oh, great. Well, that eliminates my idea. Um, so I, I thought long and hard about this and Josh really helped me out with this. Uh, so this is a, a sort of a different angle. Most of the times you're trying to replicate success and my whole, you know, the thing that I probably write most about, and I could sort of hear like the eyes rolling cause I'm just repeating myself over and over is that investing is just really, really, really hard. I don't care who you are, how much money you manage. It, it's never easy. And all of the best investors have gotten kicked in the face and that's what has made them sort of the best investors is, is longevity and staying around and getting over the, you know, picking themselves up. 
Yeah, and I, I think what's super fascinating about the the angle on this book here is, is so many people are so focused on success. Like, let's just do what he does because that's why he wins. But you've kind of inverted this and said, no, maybe the reason they're so successful is because they learn from these horrific downfalls uh, and that they just learn to avoid really bad problems and then the success just randomly came to them. Um, do, do you mind talking about a story? I know you mentioned uh, Jesse Livermore is a pretty interesting character. Maybe talk to what, what his opinions are on. Yeah, sure. So, so again, the point of the book was not to not to point out these mistakes and say avoid these mistakes. The point is that these there's so many mistakes, and you're going to make them, and you're going to make maybe the same mistakes. So it's not like oh, Warren Buffett got into trouble with the airlines and with Wells Fargo and with Dexter Shoes. Don't buy a bank or don't buy a shoe company. The point is that these sort of things just happen. So maybe it's just like to commiserate because misery loves company that, you know, if, if, you've, if you're making a bad mistake, don't worry because everybody's been there before. So the chapter on Jesse Livermore, so his whole thing was like market aphorisms, all of these beautifully elegant sayings on whatever, whatever. And the irony is that he ended up killing himself because he just made so many mistakes. And the last time that he made the mistake after, after the creation of the SEC, like what he was doing just didn't work anymore. So one of the things that he said was, if a man is both wise and lucky, he will not make the same mistake twice, but he will make many, any, uh, any one of the 10,000 brothers or cousins of the original. The mistake family is so large that there's always one of them around when you want to see what you can do in the full play line. And I thought that was just a really great way to put how vast you know the the mistake universes and i think the the mistakes that you can probably mitigate are all behavioral so you can you can prevent yourself from chasing a stock like how many times could you could you buy a breakout and sell on the retest like i did before you're like you know what i'm just i'm not going to do this anymore because it's not working yeah and it's interesting how how do you go from learning from your mistakes and having sort of systems to learn i mean that i think that's you know i keep coming back to being impressed by writing down the trading things and how how you sort of develop that own learning process. It also goes to the systemization of this tactical models that you're doing is trying to, you recognize that emotions run most of the mistakes. Was that one of the biggest lessons from the book is emotions or? Yeah. I mean, well, so, so, so the one about Stanley Druckenmiller, well, he just basically went all in on tech at the top and somebody said to him, what did you learn? And he said, nothing. I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I did it anyway. So there are some mistakes that are just unavoidable. Sometimes you just cannot help yourself, but other times you can put systems into place that combat the mistakes that you've been making repeatedly. In my case, it was I just stopped playing because it was a game that I just couldn't win. Yeah, w one of the things that I always find fascinating because I, I kind of agree with your what, what Livermore says. There's just there's so many ways to screw stuff up. So the solution is just cure behavior. But then there's another another element. If you just systematize everything, you, you lose any sort of dynamic ability to use judgment. W where do you see the role of judgment in in the context of investing and asset management? anywhere or, or what's well, you, kind of your opinion you, you have to make decisions right like you have to do something but i think the less decisions you make the better off you're going to be forget who said this i think it was an economist at at merrill uh that investing is like a bar of soap the the more you touch it the worse off you know the more it disappears something like that so you have to do something but i think the less you can interfere with the market the better off you're going to be in the long run and so when, when you think about building those portfolios, stocks and bonds are sort of the biggest asset class that most people look at. How do you think about, I remember one of the posts I, uh, on, on yours that I had followed was was gold and thinking about gold. How did you go through your own evaluation of gold and how you think that fits into these portfolio settings? Yeah, I wish I never wrote that. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I do not enjoy the gold bugs. I think that they are just apex predators that prey on the financially illiterate. And it's very, very, very easy to scare people. Very easy. 
That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I do think that there is a place for gold in a portfolio potentially, but I think that it's just nobody nobody says like, you know what, I'm I hold 15% of my portfolio in gold and I never touch it. And it's just it's there and it's it's a diversifier. It's never like that. It's always either I own 80% gold or I'm trading it every day or I own coins. Like it's always sort of crazy. So what I did was I just said, listen, I'm just using the 12 month moving average. It's above, so I'm staying in and when it get, when it closes below, I'll get out. So right now I'm in. Yeah. Here. And, and just uh, – we should probably describe, like, the chart that uh, Michael actually put up, uh, and I'll try my best here. But you, you kind of showed, I think – what was the first half of your sample? Um, oh, I said I tweeted this yesterday? Yeah. Yeah, so so I was just, just – yeah, Explain the, the graph and the so chart. So GLD and... had an amazing launch. Like, it nailed it. In the first seven years after it uh, – after State Street brought that to the market, it was up 315%, and SPY total return was up, like, on uh, – not even close. I forget yeah. the numbers. Are. It was not, probably positive in 08, too. Yeah, not even close. And a matter of fact, at one point, GLD had more assets than SPY, wow. which is sort of nuts. And then in the in the next seven years, it was a reverse. Stocks destroyed gold. Over the 14-year period, they're basically neck and neck. So I'm not anti-gold, the asset class, although I don't like – I'm not a fan of it. In uh, an amazing statistic from uh, what a Peter Bernstein's books about gold, uh, the power of gold, in 1980, for a moment – the gold and Dow were both at 800 bucks or 800. And now the Dow is at 24,000 and gold is at 1300. Now, of course I'm cherry picking because the seventies were like the greatest decade for any asset class in gold, like ever. So we got these value. It's a value concept. The the gold to uh, or the Dow to gold ratio. We got to get gold to catch up. Exactly. Yeah. That, that, uh, that, uh, it's a new, it's a new measure. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I like what you said there. Um, Unfortunately, because I agree with it, so I got confirmation bias here. But trend following gold or owning gold via systematic process, it seems to work better. Do you mind just talking through like exactly what you mean by that for yeah. those who aren't? I, I think I, I forget what the numbers were because I I wrote it I think in September, um, but I already know like that it's probably not going to work. I think the numbers were like it fails like forty percent of the time where you're going to sell at a loss. Um, I just wanted to show my intellectual flexibility. Which uh, I I sort of regret doing because who really gives a crap about my intellectual flexibility? Yeah, I remember you were you went to like a RIA thing that they were pitching gold, and you're <laughs> like, how much gold do you need to actually do to make I, this work? I got in trouble for that. Yeah, w- w- speaking about pitches, because I, I know you're sensitive to insurance, gold. You, you, I'm you a see, guy. Yeah, you know where all the the bodies are buried. W- what are some other asset classes or investment pitches that? You've you've seen over the years where where you kind of recommend that people you know tread lightly, basically Saudi Arabian bonds. Okay, I, I could buy that. Yeah, tread lightly there. I think they're giving thirteen percent, but I would be careful there. You yeah. know what? Uh, I look at all the indexes. I have seventy plus indexes. Do you know what the number one performing index is this this year? No. Middle East dividend with Saudi Arabia as a big part of it. Wow. <laughs> How's Russia? Little known doing? facts. Yeah, Meb probably owns that in his uh, G Val fund or something. Uh, so uh, you know, s- just speaking of uh, of you for a second, that post that you wrote, another post here that had really big influence on my thinking was even God would get fa- would get fired. So there's a, a stat I think from Morningstar, and maybe I'll butcher, it, but it's something like this: over the last 15 years, 15 to 20 percent of mutual funds have outperformed their index. And 75% of those funds have out, have underperformed for at least three consecutive years. So the difficulty uh, – I'm not like anti-active um, at all. I just think that for most people, harnessing any premiums in, in active management is just supremely difficult. 
Yeah, I mean, if that definitely. That's why you earn the active premium. It, people a lot of times think that there's somehow free money, but the reality is that someone's always got to be on their side of that trade. And for a lot of the active premiums, to your point, and kind of what that God post highlights, which is just saying even if you knew with perfect foresight where the biggest premiums were, even doing that strategy, you could lose along the way because you'd you know, have a behavioral problem. Um, yeah, so I, I'm a huge... Uh, Believer. Now, how do you, as an advisor, if you if you know that there's some sort of active premium and expectation, but it requires an, an inordinate amount of discipline to actually earn this premium, do you ever run across a you know random investor where where you get a sense like, hey, this is someone that I could actually train up to be able to be able to facilitate this, or for the most part? Is it better just keep it simple and let so them roll with it? Our clients are just regular people. Okay. Right? They they go to work. They come home. They do their job. They want to spend time with their family. We're not trying to rewire their brain into, you know, here's the value premium that we're going to get for you and we're going to hold it through thick or thin. That's not what we're trying to do for them. Obviously, you're on a much different side of the table than I am. But somebody was asking us yesterday, like, how I think about active share. And I'm sure you know the academic data better than I do. Uh, I don't. Th- I mean, from what I've understand that that is not predictive of better returns. It's predictive of certainly different returns. And personally, I would much rather pay eighty basis points for a mutual fund that had thirty five holdings. Um, but I would never recommend that for a client. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. It's, it's almost uh, like active share is just an indicator of the potential for success or huge potential failure. Right. It, it doesn't suggest that just because you could do active share, I could go buy every stock or the first five stocks that start with A, and it's going to have 99% active share, but that may not be a great a great strategy so to actually deploy. I wrote about the Sequoia Fund in my book, and one of their big mistakes was basically going all in on Valiant. And they had a terrific track record for like 40 years, basically started when Buffett shut down his fund. He gave, uh, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name that started it. doesn't matter. Um, uh, Bill Ruane. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he basically handed his clients over to him and did terrific. Actually, the funny story is that uh, Sequoia stumbled badly out of the gate and had terrible returns in the first three years, almost shut down the fund. But uh, Buffett's investors hung on and they, they did terrific things. But then, 40 years down the road, um, tremendous active share, very concentrated portfolio, which is what you want. You, if you're paying somebody you know, 1%, you want them to be a little bit different than the index. They were a lot different and they got crushed. So how do you think, so, you know, and certainly, then you oversee the investment portfolio, you could keep it extremely simple, right? You just buy two, you could buy one fund, really, but you could buy a low-cost S&P index fund or all total U.S. index, total global index, and an ag, and call it a day. Yep. But how do you think about going beyond that? So I, you don't just do that for people. We, we do not just do that for people. Um, but if somebody said, well, why would I pay you when I could just buy SPY and BND and be done with it? Um, well, go ahead. Like, I, there's, I'm not totally dogmatic on the investments that you choose because history has proven over and over and over again, whatever you choose left to your own devices, you're not going to stick with it. So I don't really care if you want to use an active mutual fund or an S&P 500 index fund. That's not what's going to get you. Um, because if you, if you bought a subpar mutual fund and you held it for the last 20 years and you got, you know, 7.5 instead of 8.2, who cares? You're fine. But nobody's holding a mutual fund for 20 years. So behavior alpha is one of the things that you think that that you hope uh, results is is helping people do right, but it's not enough. Like I, I was, we were talking about this on lunch, it's not enough to tell somebody, "Don't worry, stocks come back." Right? Like we're not robots. 
uh, you know, if somebody's like, but my account's down $700,000, what do you mean stocks come back? So that's why we're not just talking people off the ledge. We're actually implementing a behavioral tool, which is this trend following model that ostensibly, if the market does go down for real, not, you know, again, not what's going on now, but a prolonged bear market, we will get out. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I think you guys do a really good job of is is education. So if, if I assume if someone's one of your investors, they probably read all your guys' blogs. It's every day this drip torture of, be disciplined. Don't listen to all the noise. Have you found the, your content strategy to be a huge kind of behavioral coach lever, or, or how do you guys think, think about your yeah, content? I think, I think from the business point of view, it is. Um, so back in the day before blogs, uh, when the market fell 700 points, the advisor would stay at the office, and they would field phone calls, and they would look at the person's account, and they would tell them that their financial plan is on course, and, and whatever, whatever. Because our clients are reading what we're writing and they know our thoughts, it just it levers up the advisor's ability to to manage more relationships, um, which you know from a business point of view is is very good. Yeah, got it. So you guys can leverage the scalability of basically content. Yep. So so one and in, in, in general, I don't I'm not in the advisor business, but how many overall your sense? Maybe there's no data on it. One advisor can handle realistically how many clients for a typical firm. Hundred? I, I don't know. I'm not an advisor, but yeah, it sounds and, like a reasonable. And for you guys, it's it's much would, more scalable. I would than think that. that it's close to double that. I mean, there are constraints, but I think that. And th- so, what we definitely do not do, it's like the market's down 700 points. We don't say, okay, Barry, write something. Josh, you talk about this. Michael, you got this angle. It's all very organic, and I think it sort of feels that way. Um, yeah. I hope to, to the people that are reading. Natural reflection of what your thoughts are on the markets and what your what just your 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 at the moment thoughts. Yeah. So again, like I said earlier, it's just really nice to be able to tell our story the way that we think money should be managed for our clients. And we're not trying to convert people. We're not trying to convince everybody this is the right way to do it. Um, but if you, if what we do resonates with you and you reach out to us, like that's just a much better way to start a conversation than what I was doing at the insurance company, which is calling people and bothering them and emailing them 14 times a day. That was just a horrible place to be. Yeah. So like we, we use the saying, your, your product should be bought, not sold. Right. Because if you're just trying to jam stuff down people's throats, it's it's kind of an offensive way of uh, selling. Yeah. Basically, so, I mean, it never works. Listen, I, I understand that there's probably people that are like sort of sick and tired of us because we do so much between the blogs and the podcast. I'm sure there are people on Twitter rolling their eyes at us, and that's fine. Um, but we're not. Uh, we're trying to do it in a way that is like um, just just the right way in terms of our message. We're not you know trying to bash anybody else or what anybody else does. We, what we think what we do works for us and, and our clients and we invest in our own portfolios like the the portfolios that we recommend to our clients is in our 401k i invest o- almost a third of my money uh maybe a little bit less in our trend following model so i'm eating my own cooking you know if the ship goes down i'm going down with it well, and what in addition to the podcast the the content you also do some conferences um you want to talk about the upcoming conference in, in the west coast coming up yeah sure so we're doing one this is our second one at data point at the beautiful monarch beach resort it's going to be a lot of fun um we have some some people outside of the industry we wanted to like change it up a little bit so we have michael lombardi from the ringer and nfl network he has a new book coming out he was a gm with the cleveland browns and he worked with the patriots and bill belichick so that should be fun we have ryan holiday who wrote um, Ego is the Enemy and Obstacles Away, and he has a new book about the Gawker scandal. So that should be a, an interesting one. Um, and, you know, it's great to, to see interesting people, but it's just it's better to get to spend some face time with people. 
Definitely. I remember, uh, actually, it's it's super relevant now. You had Scott Galloway at your guys' uh, last uh, Is that conference. guy amazing? He was amazing because he's literally predicting exactly what's going on in, in the FANG stocks right now. You, you mind elaborating on that? So the, to tell about Scott, his story, and tying that into Facebook and all the so chaos. So I just became aware of him like within the last two years. It seems like he has exploded onto the scene. Uh, he wrote a book called The Four last year, which was one of my favorite books of the year about Amazon, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook. Yep. And just the stranglehold that they have on the world. And he has been talking about the breakup of these companies for a long time and just a terrific book. And just seeing that guy speak, like, man, he is polished. He's humble. And, well, I thought he made such a great point where he's where he's like, you guys are all using these platforms. And right now your sentiment is such that they're all good people doing the right thing. He's like, if we just have one crack in that sentiment – this whole edifice could just explode. And now, you know, Facebook, the the gal who runs it was on Today's show this morning, like defending, you know, all the privacy problems. So I, I basically tying it back to your conference, I, you know, he was talking about this a year before it actually started happening. And we have Mark Zuckerberg in, uh, in June. <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm just go. kidding. Yeah. <laughs> he, no, will not, he will not be there. I don't know if I'm, if I'm remembering this tweet rightly from him did i think i see him talking about despite all these problems at facebook that he just doesn't think things are going to change all that much so that he would actually suggest buying facebook today i don't know if that's accurately well, reflecting so it um, he, or if you have a view because given how much you guys do on social i have no view whatsoever but but let's just say that the economics of the company don't change that they still earn whatever the number is 90 billion i'm making it up i have no idea but let's just say that that doesn't change but people's mood changes and they're just less optimistic on on its future prospects the stock could drop 40 percent. why not yeah, I'm with you. Valuation could like, change. Last year, Tesla's free cash flow was negative four billion, or, or you know, again, I'm making that number up, and stock was great. These companies could do no wrong, and now it seems like a lot of them could do no right. And what changes is just a lot of it's just psychology, and predicting when that is going to change is just the height of, of foolishness, in my opinion. Yeah, well, and the, and the data backs that up. They're, they're called glamour stocks. If you systematically buy really extremely highly valued firms, it always seems like a good idea. But the sentiment component of their valuations is so high, if something has a kink in that, they go from being a great company at 50 times earnings to a great company at 10 times earnings, but you just lost a whole you know boatload of valuation. I think the hardest part for investors is that they see the biggest winners are the glamour stocks. But yeah. as a basket, they're, as you know better than anybody, they're just terrible investments. Yeah, certainly. Uh, but it, but it's very difficult to not want to buy Amazon at insane valuations and just assume that the expected returns are really high. But to our earlier point, if prices go up a lot, expected returns mechanically go down. It's it's math. They're in their um, own world of not having to make a profit. But uh, it's, it's interesting. This, this tech stuff is interesting how – I mean, it is such a – these giant companies are such a deflationary force on the world. Like I wonder if they are like systematically transforming the way that commerce works, the way that companies are valued. And this certainly you know, sounds like the sort of thing that you would hear at the top of a cycle. Um, but it just it just seems like they are really changing the way that yeah, well, the and, works. And I agree with you 100% because I know your guys' operations are all cloud-based. Ours are all cloud-based. Anyone can set up a business now and have – you know, full stack operational software for, you know, thousand bucks a month. But one of the key things uh, actually Dave talked about, uh, Dave Bablack, is, is business is not about just creating value, but capturing it. So the ability, these firms are clearly going to create tons of value for society. But the question is, how much are they able to capture? 
And if Amazon gets regulated, you know, if, if Facebook becomes like a utility, they've created huge value add for society, but they may be the worst investments of all time because they're not able to capture it as a business. So I'm really happy. I don't have to make those sort of decisions. I am too. Um, it's good to be a passive investor in, in these uh, investments, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're down to our, our three-minute countdown here, Mike. Um, any sort of broad lessons, things you've learned over the course of you know, your career here at Ritholtz, things, life lessons you'd want to share people with how you got to where you are and, and what that tells people? Yeah, people love hearing about the shortcuts. How did you do it? How do you, you know whatever you're doing and it's just a lot of a lot of luck I, I met josh at 10:45 at night after a knicks playoff game when they were getting blown out if the knicks weren't getting you know if the knicks weren't down by 25 i would not have left in the third quarter um so a lot of it is just being in the right place at the right time so but then I, tackling him and sticking with him yeah true I, I did tackle him um i guess just just general advice is if you know just working hard is obviously better than not working hard and it sounds stupid but like you know you fall into luck, I guess. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, you guys are a perfect example of the 10-year overnight success. Yeah. Because how many years are you guys in on this? Eight? Yeah. It's, seven uh, or this eight? is our um, uh, sixth, fifth or sixth. Yeah. But Barry talks about this all the time. That it took him 15 years to become an overnight success. Any further reflections? Further reflections. Uh, let's see. Well, we got 100 seconds here, so i got to reflect <laughs> on something. Is LeBron coming to the Sixers? That's what I need to know. I think, where, where's he going? Is he staying in Cleveland? I don't know. I'm a Knicks fan. I'm a Giants fan. I don't really care about LeBron James. you got your brother here in the studio. Any comments for him of what he should focus on while at Wharton? Uh, class. Don't get kicked out like I did. It's a good, pretty good life lesson. Yeah. So uh, what, what, what reflections do you have in the final 60 seconds, Jeremy? Reflections? Listen, I think what you guys have done has been incredible. The the, the social media presence. Um, I learn a lot from you guys every day following you on, on Twitter, the, the podcast. And I think it's, uh, it, it's really commendable what you guys are doing. Thank you. Likewise. I'm going to take a, a little tale from the Jordan era. Be like Mike. Thanks, Wes. Be like Mike. You've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Sirius XM 111. You can follow Ritholtz Wealth Management, Michael Batnick, at the Irrelevant Investor blog. He has an Animal Spirits podcast. I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno, producer, Patty Hall. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.